As the uh, children are dismissed to Transformation Station, I encourage you to pick up your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4. If you don't uh, have a Bible with you, you can find one underneath the seats in front of you. And in fact, if you don't own a Bible, we encourage you to take this one home. It's our gift to you. We believe that the scriptures are worth reading every day, not just on Sundays. Uh, If you'll open to Galatians chapter 4, you'll find it in your uh, pew Bibles in page 974. As uh, Tanner indicated, I've been coming here for, I think, 13 or 14 months. And like many of you, I sit and listen to the Word as it's taught and preached. In fact, I'm kind of a note taker and uh, love to be able to go back to my community group with the nuggets that have been picked up on Sunday morning. I am really privileged and honored to be able to share with you this morning. it, It occurred to me as I was driving to church this morning that 26 years ago, I was married in the backyard of 22 Orchard Street to my bride, Teresa, right here in Medford. And this morning, I have an opportunity to be in the city that I was married and be able to share the Word of God with you. And that kind of tickled my spirit as I was driving here this morning. Now, from the very beginning, as we've been studying Galatians, we've been sure to understand that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. From the moment that the Apostle Paul began writing to Christians in Galatia, he hammered that central thought over and over again. Over the last seven Sundays, John and Tanner have been carefully walking us through what the essence of that gospel is. And so I think before we dive into this morning's scripture, that it would be smart to take a moment and just review that real quick. From the very beginning, Paul made it clear that there was no other gospel than Jesus plus nothing. See, Paul, as an apostle, an appointed messenger with authority, he had the good news of God's rescue mission through Jesus Christ. And we cannot miss that he was consumed with a passion for the purity of that gospel. And he had a strong reaction to anyone or anything that would attempt to add to or dilute from that central message. Any attempt to do that would be to create what Paul called another gospel, and that would be unacceptable. For the true gospel is God's gospel. It was not a creation that was born from Paul's mind. It didn't come from just general wisdom. God is the one who revealed it. It is powerful to save. And the Galatians, like Paul, had been blessed to receive that good news. And as a result, they had been transformed. Paul says that they had put off the old, and now they had taken on the new. Paul reminded him that there was a new reality for them as a people. Because for many different people, a new unity had been brought about. It was a gospel unity. It placed them in new relationships with each other there in Galatia, as well as with Christians all over the world. What were once barriers to genuine community had been leveled. And God's people, his family, would no longer be separated by broken relationships. If you remember a couple Sundays ago, Tanner put us into a courtroom. And in that courtroom, those who received Jesus Christ had been declared justified. They'd been declared right with God because of what Christ had done for them on the cross. 
It was through faith, it wasn't through personal effort, that each Galatian believer recognized Jesus' perfect life, and they recognized his sacrificial death, and they recognized that it was completely, entirely sufficient to satisfy the just requirements of a holy, loving Father. Paul wrote, Christ loved me, and he gave himself for me. Even more wonderful was the reality that, for the believer, Christ wasn't just for us, but he was in us. Imagine that. Every believer, including you and I, living and breathing and walking with the creator of the universe in us. And this union would naturally result in a new desire to start to walk in step with God's gospel, not just in some areas of their lives, but in all areas of their lives. For every believer was to die to himself, Paul said, and to live by faith in Christ. Paul reminded the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul was adamant that the Galatians were to promote the grace of God, and they were to boast only in the cross of Christ, and they were to guard against any approach to Christianity that would attempt to add or dilute from that. The gospel starts with God. It's sustained by his character, and it ends with God. No person and no thing can add anything to it, for the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. It is by faith alone that a Christian would receive the spirit of the living God and live each day by that same spirit. And Paul reminded the Galatians that that had always been true, for even Father Abraham had found favor with God, not through what he had done, but through the faith that he had placed in his Father God. And the favor that had fallen upon Abraham it was God's favor that would be extended to not just him, but to all of the nations. Blessing would not be through the law, for the law came after God's promises with Abraham. The law would reveal the true nature of men's hearts. Failure to keep this law, Tanner reminded us, would necessarily result in a curse and not a blessing. And so Paul urgently exhorted the Galatians not to elevate the law beyond its true purpose. Rather, they were to flee to the cross and remember the faithfulness of who God was. God's promise of salvation wasn't for a moment or for a season, but it was for eternity. And Paul reminded the church at Philippi, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. See, Paul reminded the Galatians that his promises should encourage them, even in times of difficulty, even in times of doubt, even in times of suffering. The Galatians were to cling to the promises of God through faith in Christ, to put on Christ, to live in union with him. After all, Paul said, they had been afforded the highest privilege of the gospel. 
For in his mercy and at just the right time, God sent his son, Jesus, as a suffering servant so that they might be adopted into his family as his children in fulfillment of his promises to his people. And as their children, his spirit had been deposited in them. They were to now experience him in intimacy, in access, in assurance, and in confidence. Nothing else was required to gain God's favor. They simply were his beloved. And it's at this point that we pick up what Paul is going to teach this morning because he makes, I think, a pretty crucial point. He says this gospel faith that we've been looking at for seven weeks, it's the foundation for true gospel ministry while every other alternative that you could imagine, pagan or religious, will just lead to worldly ministry. And so before we dive into this scripture, I'm going to ask if you'll simply do something with me. I'll ask if you'll just bow your heads. And would you just repeat after me a very simple prayer? Spirit of the living God, open my heart and change my life. Amen. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Formally, Paul says that there was a time in the past when these Galatian Christians were in bondage. They were in slavery. Something held them captive. The situation could be described as bleak. For as Gentiles holding faith in pagan idols and false gods, they were in the minds of any right-thinking Israelite, barbaric, irreligious at the best. For Israelites worship the one true God, Yahweh, and these gods, these so-called gods, they weren't true gods, but they did exercise some power over people. There were spiritual and sometimes demonic powers that could work through the elements of fire and water, air and earth. And they had to be worshipped, and they had to be satisfied and appeased. And so in Galatia, a farmer might sacrifice to a weather god for crops to come in well. Or lovers may sacrifice to a god of physical beauty that their sexuality would be enhanced. Idol worship, temple sacrifice, and the associated immoralities that were part of that were regular features of a pagan lifestyle. And fear, not love, was the underlying emotion that typified the approach of a pagan believer when they went to appease a created being. Paul goes on to say, but now, but now, 
But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. See, thankfully, we know in the cross that Jesus Christ unmasked these sham gods as part of a created order that actually was passing away. It had no permanence. And Paul reminded Galatian believers that it was through this sacrifice of Jesus Christ that they had come to know God, the one true God, worthy of real praise and real honor and real love. There had been a reversal. There had been a a turning around in the lives of these believers, for they had turned away their affections towards false gods. And as Paul says, have come to know God. Actually, Paul kind of clarifies himself here, and it's an important point to think about. Rather, he says, they have come to be known by God. For God the Father is the one who initiates salvation. He is the one who sought them. He is the one who precipitates the relationship between God and men. We need to always remember that the gospel, the good news, it always begins with God and that it is sustained by himself. Our knowing God is conditioned upon his prior knowing us. In truth, we're kind of like blinded rats running around a labyrinth, checking this little latch or trying to open this door in our search for God. We need to remember what the Apostle John said. We love because he first loved us. To know God, Paul said, wasn't to fearfully approach a selfish or gratuitous God like Zeus. The Galatians would have been familiar with Zeus. They actively worshipped him in a temple found in Iconium. No, to know God was to experience in mind and body and spirit the Father of all creation, to have a daily encounter that's dominated by the loving spirit of adoption that John shared with us last week. And it would be through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Jesus and nothing else. And this was the present condition of the Galatians who Paul loved and was serving. Now Paul goes on to write, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? See, Paul, like a good father, protecting his children, was always on the alert and vigilantly looking for danger. And there was, at this time, a real danger in the lives of the Galatians. It was one that was so threatening that it caused Paul to wonder whether or not his work in the middle of them had been in vain, for the Galatians were in danger of retreating. See, having been freed from bondage through Christ on the cross, they appeared to him to be willing to return to slavery. Now, several weeks ago, Tanner shared with us a story that as Bostonians is in the front of our minds. It's a story of unmerited favor or grace. And he asked us to imagine a scenario where Whitey Bulger, the notorious gangster, had received a just sentence in the courtroom from a judge because of years and years and years of heinous crimes, up to including multiple murders. And and Tanner challenged us to imagine the surprise that would be found if at the sentencing somebody stood up in the back and said, I'll take that punishment. And yet, that's exactly what the gospel says Jesus Christ does on behalf of those who believe 
in his substitutionary death. And I remember sitting there thinking how surprising that is if I had been there in that courtroom. But you know what? As I was thinking about this morning, I think, Tanner, I have an even more surprising thought. What if in your story, six months, a year, two years later, Whitey Bulger came back to that very same courtroom and he presented himself before the very same sentencing judge and he declared for everyone to hear that he wanted to return to his shackles. It's surprising enough to think that somebody would be willing to take them for him. I think it would be shocking to think that he would want to go back and have them placed back on. I'm thinking in my mind that the judge or anyone that was standing there would probably have the kind of response that as the father of three teenage children I might have. For there were times in their lives I looked at them and I said simply, are you out of your mind? What are you thinking? In fact, I might, two of them are here, they would testify, I might even give them a little friendly fatherly bop on the head and try and give them a little bit of common sense. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul is reacting when he says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And sitting here today, you may say to yourself, oh, I could never consider a return to that kind of bondage. And my thought would be, really? See, I'm guessing that many of us are like the Hebrews who were with Moses as they were leading out of Egypt. The details of that story is familiar, but these were real people. They had suffered the tyranny of pain and death in the land of Egypt, and they'd been called out to God for mercy and deliverance. They had experienced Yahweh's mighty hand to deliver. They had seen him as a cloud at night and a fire by night and a cloud by day. They had heard the word as it was brought down to them from Mount Sinai. And yet it was these very same people that grew in dissatisfaction, that grew in complaining and grew in disaffection. They had a desire that they actually verbalized to return to Egypt to the daily hard labor that they had experienced under the hands of wicked and cruel taskmasters. Amazing, isn't it? Um, preposterous, well, maybe. Dangerous, definitely. Possible, Paul thinks so. Sometimes in our discomfort, sometimes in our confusion, we forget that we leave Egypt not for the desert, but it's on our way to the promised land. And yet we're surprised, I think, sometimes when temptation comes in and a return to bondage can enter our lives a return to what Paul called weak and worthless. Principalities, people, places that we know have no real power. Those things, I think, in our lives are like poisonous snakes that have had their heads cut off, but their bodies are still moving. But we need to remember that they're moving and wriggling in death throes, not in life. Paul goes on to say, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. The Apostle Paul doesn't chastise the Galatians 
because they use day timers, they're, because they're punctual or they're faithful in, in, in their calendar. No, his concern about their observations of days and months and seasons and years is that they've become, began to listen to those who would add something to the gospel of Jesus plus nothing. As we've heard in other sermons, there were folks there that were trying to add something to what Paul considered to be the pure gospel. And with a form of religious legalism, they promoted a salvation by works righteousness. Your effort would certainly add to the gospel. Attempts to satisfy God's holiness, it came through personal and religious effort that was shaped by Old Testament rhythms. Devotion and satisfaction to the law instead of to the giver of the law was its dominant feature. Now, it's here that Paul makes a conclusion that I think, I think we can lose its relevance a little bit in our culture. But if a hearer with a Jewish background had heard his conclusion, they would have been shocked. It would have been a scandal. For he indicates that this type of devotion to the Mosaic law is just like going back to paganism. See, Gentiles who were once devoted to false god experience a certain kind of hopelessness before their conversion to Christ. And in their attraction to add to the gospel, Paul says they will experience the exact same kind of hopelessness. For both are powerless to save. Slavery is slavery. It doesn't matter which cruel master holds the whip and cracks it. Paul had found these Galatians lost in their pagan idol worship. He rejoiced when they had responded to the proclaiming of the good news of Jesus Christ. He became their brothers and sisters in Christ. He, as well as they, were adopted into the family of God. And he was now alarmed that they might be tempted to return to their prior lost condition through the doors of a powerless acceptance through performance. And with that as a backdrop, let's look at the rest of the scripture. Starting with uh, verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. 
sometimes I think when we think about the Apostle Paul, we see him as merely a scholar with just great intellectual powers, sort of what I'd say all head, no heart. But in this section of his letter to the Galatians, you really can't make a mistake because Paul's here not necessarily talking as Paul the theologian or, or Paul the apostle or Paul the defender of the faith. Here, I think Paul is talking as Paul the pastor, talking to people that he cared about deeply. Remember, he had planted this church in their midst, and he was connected to who they were. He valued the relationship. I think he desired that relationship to flourish. He had been faithful in his labors, and he cared profoundly. And because of that, I think if we take a few minutes and read through this portion of Scripture, we can identify some important, what I call, gospel characteristics around conducting gospel ministry. Um, one that is faithful to Jesus plus nothing as our paradigm. And I think perhaps we can learn something as individuals. And not just as individuals, but as individuals collectively known as Redemption Hill Church here in Greater Medford. In uh, verse 12, he says, For I also have become as you are. Now the Greek here, it's really cumbersome. It translated, it literally could read, I, for I like you. That's about as, as smooth as it gets. In other words, Paul's identification with these Galatians was so strong that it was like they were one and the same. And although he was Jewish by birth, he had become like them, Gentiles, because he was like them, free from slavery under the Mosaic law. In addition, from the beginning of his mission to them, he did not keep his distance from them. He did not stand on his dignity. Rather, he became like them as he entered into their cultural norms. He entered into their customs without ever violating the centrality of the gospel. Paul became what I call culturally flexible for a ministry that is energized by the gospel is flexible and adaptable to everything except the essence of that gospel. See, to truly live among people in order to reach them for the gospel can often mean for us that we need to adopt their ways and love them as we eat with them, as we play with them, as we talk and as we walk with them to get to know their world, to live in it with appreciation, even though it may not be our world. Paul states it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Oftentimes, we must become one with those we hope to reach, motivated by Christian compassion, before we're able to help them become one with us through Christian conviction and experience. It's in that way that we can answer honestly questions and answers that they have address hopes and fears, talk to their sensitivities, adapt parts of their life, assume some of their language. I've noticed Tanner and John even drop some of their R's sometimes since they've moved up here. And all of this done without changing the gospel itself. See, like the false teachers that Paul had confronted, sometimes we take our own cultural preferences 
and we try to put them on top of the gospel message. See, the mindset of a legalist is actually quite inflexible, and it tends to be obsessed with what I'll call the secondary details of life, the things that really don't matter, the issues that are often extraneous to the gospel itself. Recently, I read a book. It was called Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes. And the authors there pointed out that there's probably at least nine different ways that white male Christians raised in the Western Hemisphere, that would be me, can be trapped by their worldview from properly reading the Scriptures and engaging different cultures from their own. And as I began to think about their points, I realized how easy it is to assume that your style, your preference, your culture is the correct one and therefore, we tend to attempt to try and place it upon other people. Mistakenly, and here's the danger, thinking that that is their introduction to true Christianity. Now, the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. That's the message that we take into culture. As believers, we need to be mindful of that, that when we enter into other cultures, that we meet people right where they are, and that we love them right where they are as God loves them. That's why as a church... Redemption Hill places such a priority, not only in inviting people to come here and worship with, with us on Sunday mornings, but also a priority on missional living. See, we intentionally keep our calendars light so that we can have the discretionary time to be where people are. It's also like why we like to create um, culturally sensitive connecting events. Like um, we do soccer nights. Many of you have participated in that. Uh, we do soccer nights because guess what? Our culture likes soccer. We do Easter egg hunts because our culture is in sync with that rhythm. It's why we volunteer here at the Boys Club or teach English as a second language at the Medford uh, Housing Authority. At the end of the day, we desire to become students of the needs and the culture of Greater Medford so we can do a better job of being culturally flexible as we share the gospel and love people into greater understanding. Paul went on to challenge the Galatians. He said, become as I am. So often our words alone aren't sufficient to help others see the truth of the gospel. As we live life, we need to demonstrate transparency in the way that we go about living daily. See, opening our hearts and inviting others to see how we live under the lordship of Jesus Christ can many times be one of the most persuasive arguments for the truth of the gospel. Now, I don't think we have to feel the pressure of living perfect, but we do need to allow others to see how we handle disappointment as Christians. I think we have to let them, allow them to see how we conduct our relationships within our marriage, with our neighbors, with our friends, as Christians. I think we need to allow them to see all kinds of areas in our lives where we're acting based on the Christian truths that we claim. People need to actually see whether our confession of Christ is real, and they need to see whether or not the gospel actually has the power to impact the way that we live day to day. Now, we do have to be on guard against arrogance. Paul certainly pointed out that his adversaries in Galatia suffered from a very prideful motivation. But in our lives, we should not hesitate to encourage others to follow me as I follow Christ. 
Prayerfully, our invitation to others is rooted in the freedom and the joy and the salvation that is found in Christ. By allowing other people to share our lives, to live our lives transparently before them, we shouldn't be afraid to invite them into that very same freedom, that very same joy, that very same salvation. As such, our church embraces the concept of discipleship, relationships where a curious or perhaps a newer follower of Christ can receive some one-on-one time with an experienced follower of Christ, not a perfect follower of Christ. Opportunities for encouragement, accountability, and growth in Christ can flow as two people share life together in a commitment to try and follow Christ more intentionally. Now, I love there's a simple tool that was designed, I think, by John, but by, certainly by the leadership of our church. It's called Personal Discipleship Strategy. I brought a few with me. I'll be happy to share them with the end of the service. But it's a simple tool that I will sometimes use because I desire, like the leadership, to develop healthy people who are growing in maturity in Christ, to understand what it means to be a disciple in Christ, to prioritize certain rhythms of grace that we looked at as a church through dependent discipline, to learn how to make disciples both here in greater Boston as well as throughout the nations. Um, I find it to be a real useful tool. Right now, I meet um, regularly with two young men, and we talk about, we have a focused discussion on a regular basis about some rhythms. We talk about the rhythms of prayer, uh, and, and one young man and myself are together, living life together transparently as we encourage each other on as followers of Christ. There's another young man that I'm meeting with, and, and he's struggling with the concept of the rhythm of community. And so we're talking about what's it like to participate in a discipleship relationship? What's it like to be involved in a small community group? What's it like to even come together as the body of Christ corporately on a Sunday morning? In both instances, my life, I assure you, is exposed to them, and they see the real me, and their lives are exposed to me in in confidence, uh, in confidentiality, but in an effort to encourage each other to move forward and grow together. And in fact, if today you find yourself sitting there saying, I'd love to uh, perhaps help somebody in those areas grow, or I'm somebody that really could use some one-on-one time and and some discipleship time, then I encourage you to come up and talk to us and, and allow us. We would love to place you in one of those types of relationships. Thirdly, Paul goes on to write, you know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial uh, to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now, in speaking to the Galatians, Paul didn't tolerate opportunities and hardship. He embraced opportunities and hardship. For him, problems became possibilities. Whether his ailment had caused him to detour or delay, he knew that in God's timing it created an opportunity for him to share the gospel with the Galatians he was writing to. Paul persevered. And I'm sure that he prayed for the removal of suffering in his life, but in the midst of his prayers, he remained assured that any suffering experienced by him could be used by God to bring about good. In this case, the good of the Galatians, who had greatly benefited from his time. Now, in contrast, 
there are always going to be those that point to the presence of difficulty or suffering as a sign of God's displeasure with you. Now, do you remember um, how Jesus responded to his disciples when they spotted a blind man? Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? I like how the message paraphrases Jesus' response. You're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here, working while the sun shines. You see, we, like the disciples that were talking to Jesus, we have to resist the temptation to see every difficult circumstance as a slight from God's hand upon us. And instead, we need to remember that ministry doesn't always happen according to human plans. Now, this morning, I'm actually preaching this word back to myself because by nature, I am a planner. I think sometimes a year out, two years out, 10 years out. At soccer nights this past year, on the third night, I was already figuring out what we would do different in 2014. So I'm a planner. That's my nature. What's curious about that is I have never in my life in any of my plans ever designed suffering, disappointment, or pain. And yet I can look back at my life and I can see those occasions where suffering and pain and discouragement was in line with where God was going, either in my life or in somebody else's life. As a church, we recognize what Paul told the Romans. He said, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Those things can be pleasant. Those things can be painful. In fact, as a church, in our very name, we proclaim a suffering Savior who died a cruel death because it was on a hill in Jerusalem that redemption was achieved. We proclaim a crucified Lord who lived a crucified life. So here's my question. How can we, as followers of this suffering Savior, be exempt from suffering? We simply cannot. If there's a word of encouragement this morning, let's move forward in the assurance that in this broken world, which is temporary, that we move towards a day when suffering will be replaced with unending joy. And so when we encounter hardships, let us see the opportunities that God is creating in our lives as we proclaim the goodness of his gospel to anyone who comes in our path. Let's commit to not just tolerate hardship, but as the church of Jesus Christ, let's embrace it when it inevitably comes into our lives. Paul goes on to write, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? It's clear that when the Galatians first encountered Paul, 
they experienced his love for them. He addresses them as brothers. He later on calls them little children. Those are both terms of affection. He'd sacrificed for them. They had acknowledged being blessed. In fact, their, their response, their sense of him was so profound that he says that they were willing to gouge out their eyes and give them to him. What was precious to them, they were willing to surrender for his sake. It's kind of like what we would say today, um, if you would marry me, I'd give you my right arm. Um, such love for Paul was a good indication that they really had received the Spirit of God. But here's what we need to remember. Paul's love for them wasn't simple sentimentality. He was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he recognized the gospel ministry will serve both the needs of love but also the needs of truth. And so he asks a rhetorical question, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? As he had been fulfilling his responsibility to be honest, he had created some tension and their friendship between them had seemed to cool. He doesn't accuse them of being enemies, but he says that it certainly feels that way. And this stands in direct contrast to the false teachers that we've talked about this morning. Paul says that these false teachers are flattering the Galatians. Why? So that the Galatians in turn can flatter them and build up their esteem and their worth and their praise. But Paul, he says, loves them enough, loves them enough, loves them enough to speak the truth into their life. As individual believers, I think that each day we need to invite the spirit of the living God to fill us so that the encounters that we have with people are encounters of discernment. We certainly must love passionately and love deeply and love practically and love sacrificially, but we also must be willing to risk the loss of returned affection when it's appropriate to speak clear biblical truth into the life of a friend. One of the aspects of life at Redemption Hill that first attracted Teresa and I when we came here um, was we found a, a balance in that because it can be a tricky balance to sort of walk. We saw genuine caring. We saw sacrifice of people that had left what was familiar to them in order to come here and love native New Englanders. We've experienced that kindness firsthand and honestly, we've discovered it to be genuine. But we're just as blessed by the commitment of our leadership to be able to speak tough truths. It's one of the advantages, I think, when we work our way through the scriptures expositorily, verse by verse. We don't avoid the difficult issues when we're doing that. Whether that's in the pulpit here or it's in our community groups, we can expect that if there's a biblical truth to be read, that we will deal with that biblical truth. And it might be a difficult word. It may, in fact, even sting us once in a while as the Spirit of God penetrates our hearts. But I appreciate the willingness that we have as a community to humbly proclaim those core biblical truths. In society today, if you want to be countercultural, in society today, that is countercultural. Finally, 
Paul goes on to write about the false teachers just a little bit more. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you made much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul wanted partners who glorified Christ. True gospel ministry should reflect true gospel faith, Jesus plus nothing. It is the gospel that brings people to Christ's dependence. It is the gospel that shapes them into Christ's likeness. It is the gospel that provokes people to Christ's praise. And Paul here uses a funny metaphor. He pictures himself, a man, as being pregnant and in labor about to give birth. But the reality of the coming birth is going to be evident when, when Christ takes shape in them. Paul's labor is God's labor. It is God who is the one who has the power to bring something from conception to birth. He has the power to bring it from the beginning to completion. The suffering of birth pangs, if you read the Old Testament, is a common, common metaphor that points the reader to the time when the whole world will rightly see the day of the Lord and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and all of the works that we have will melt before the glory of the presence of God. In contrast, these false teachers we've talked about this morning, they ultimately want followers who glorify them. Their aim and teaching is to attract others so that they might be lifted up in adoration for their efforts and their work. And I think if we're honest, it's a common temptation for each one of us anytime we seek to serve the needs of another. It's tempting to sort of leave the realm of an honest self-assessment. How did I do so I can do better? And to slip into of the world of what I call selfish ambition. The dividing line between those two things for us as believers can sometimes be very thin and we need to be on guard against that. One of the ways that we can resist that temptation, I think, is to place ourselves regularly in the company of like-minded believers for the purpose of routine worship of Jesus Christ. He deserves our adoration. So whether we're in our community groups or in our ministry teams or in this morning in our corporate worship, we must keep our focus on the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. Paul told the Ephesians this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence. Reverence for who? Out of reverence for Christ. So here at Redemption Hill, you may have noticed that we often pick big portions of Scripture that we read corporately, and we place our focus clearly on who Christ is. Um, if you notice our music, oftentimes, we select music that elevates the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our attention is placed there. Now, we do recognize that there's times when our experiences emotionally relating to God can be captured in music. It's not to say that that's not possible, 
But to help us to avoid the temptation of it becoming about ourselves, we consciously, clearly, and intentionally place the focus on God the Father, Jesus Christ his Son, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's then that the truth of who he is can then cascade into our lives. He is exalted, and we, without apology, glory in Christ. Well, honestly, I, we've, we've covered, I think, a lot this morning, but today I just want to give you a final thought. If you confess Jesus as Lord after hearing today's scripture, I really encourage you to hold firm to the present life with the gospel, Jesus plus nothing. In fact, if you'll just take your hand and just put it out here for a second, just put it out here, and just symbolically grasp and hold and refuse to let go. Let us remember that our former life before Christ, and let's be thankful for that free gift of salvation, for there was a former time in our lives. And let us equally refuse to return to any form of obedience, to any cruel taskmaster, false god, self, sin, legalism, anything except Christ and Christ alone. If you're sitting here this morning and you can't really remember a life before Christ and you're really not sure what I'm talking about, then perhaps today will be a marker as a new day in your life. And I just simply urge you to confess your own sin before a holy but merciful Father. And just believe in your heart that Jesus' willing sacrifice, the one that we've described this morning, was sufficient for your debt. And then confess with your tongue today, November 11th, 2013, that Jesus is your merciful master. And if you're willing to do that this morning, there's people here that be willing to talk to you about what that means and pray with you. And for all of us that's gathered here as Redemption Hill Church, let's commit ourselves to really moving out in gospel ministry. Let's be culturally flexible as guided by the Spirit of the living God. Let's never distort that gospel message. Let's demonstrate transparency with our friends, with our neighbors, with our coworkers. Let's invite them to follow me as I follow Christ. Let's embrace opportunities that can be found in hardship. Even though they can be difficult, let's resist the temptation to see everything that comes at us as adversity as a rejection or disfavor from God. Let's serve, let's balance truth and love in ways that compel other people towards God the Father. And let's glory in Christ. Let's refuse the temptation to think that ministry and service is all about us. Paul feared that he had labored in vain. Let it never be said that in our lives here as Redemption Hill Church that this was true of us. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from us. Your steadfast love, your faithfulness will ever preserve me. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, 
Oh my God.